episode 131, Australia 2. Coming to you from aboard the Maureen M in Queenscliff Harbour once more. We last contemplated the Inari in three sections, one each on the island's herd and Macquarie, and the other in Melbourne, fielding questions from the Administrative Committee and newspapers. While the home crowd kept themselves entertained with the traditional pastimes of VFL, the Melbourne Cup and racism, those Australians in the Southern Ocean that year made do with a piano and a radiogram, and for those of you younger than I am, that's an electrically powered radio and turntable combined in a wooden cabinet, and if you're asking what's a turntable, shut up is what, and get off my lawn. 150 recordings from classics to boogie-woogie, remember that this was 1948 and rock and roll still lay several years and a half a world away, so the rebellious young Australians listened to one of its precursors, a form of fast blues well suited for dancing, and a projector and films to run through it served as the electronic entertainment of the era. Again, shut up and get off my lawn, yawned Sprog. Table tennis served the neurotypical Australian need to compete in some sort of sport, even in adverse weather. Booze was supposed to be rationed, but half the staff didn't drink, so instead of conservation for a pre-dinner damp glass and an occasional party, the alcohol went on the shelf for anyone to use at any time in any quantity. Abbott Smith recorded that most members of the Heard Island contingent, even the teetotalers, spent at least one evening getting slowly and quietly drunk, alone in the company of everyone else, but removed and not lonely, in their intoxicated inner world. And this occasional individual chemical escape seemed to serve the community well. Boiled sweets and peanuts arrived at the islands in quantities large enough that people ate them just to get them out of the way, but chocolate and cigarettes were in short supply after pilfering by wharfies, and these consumables became the local currency. Concentrating on Heard Island. A cache of fresh meat carried south aboard LST 3501 went into a crevasse on the nearest glacier to the camp, the Bodasin, but the temperature within the icy confines didn't keep the cache cold enough to prevent spoiling, and the brown stains spreading across the ice surface gave the Inarists the news. Tin bully beef for you from here on out, lads, unless you fancy local fare. Norm Jones was competent as a cook, though not as adept as his Macquarie Island counterpart, and while he kept everyone fully fed, the fare didn't vary near as much as at Macquarie. Finding his herd island habitat existentially threatening, the cook rarely ventured more than a few hundred metres from the base buildings, and then only to tackle and butcher penguins and seals as the menu and stores dictated. Fred Jacker recounted the difficulty involved in killing a penguin quickly and humanely. Firing Gottlieb's pistol at them invariably resulted in something other than a headshot, and the animal seemed to absorb any amount of high-speed lead in their centre mass without slowing down. He resorted to tackling them and sawing their heads off with the sharpest knife available. Brutal, but protein-laden. Swampy Compton shot a couple of elephant seals and revived the sealing tripods to try his hand at rendering oil from blubber, but gave it away when no one wanted to help him in the smelly operation and when the impossibility of smuggling the resulting oil haul home became apparent. Skewers ate a parcel of gelignite Bob Dovers set aside for blowing the tops off empty fuel drums preparatory to their use as rock and gravel-filled anchors for the antenna array. No exploded skewer corpses rained down on the island, 
so either the explosives remain stable while bathed in digestive acids, or skewers lack the activation energy of a detonator in their day-to-day -day scavenging, or the excitement happened out of sight somewhere. No fictional narrative ever sets up Chekhov's dynamite-laden waterfowl in that manner without a despairing squawking noise and a subsequent rain of feathers, so you know this must be real life. Fred Jacker took a hit in his challenge on the second corner of the local beard growing competition when he checked on the combustion in the seal blubber and driftwood stove, keeping the concreting water hot. On opening the firebox aperture, a great gout of flame enveloped his head and reduced his face fungus to withered and evil smelling stubble, though this loss literally saved his skin. Doc Gilchrist kicked off the nearest that first Heard Island team experienced to an actual upset by exhuming the body of a sealer in Southwest Bay. The doctor wanted to examine the skeleton and to report on any sealer's maladies evident thereon, but everyone else, the cook in particular, didn't want human remains brought back to camp. A furtive doctor heading shoreward in the dawn light with a shovel and a kerosene tin gave Gilchrist's game away, and a trio of Anaras found Gilchrist knees deep in the grave, a skull and torso already exposed. Just as Gilchrist thought he'd determined the seal had died from a depressed fracture of one temple, Orb Gottlieb tipped the bones out of the kerosene tin back into their resting place. According to Campbell Drury, Gilchrist rose from the grave and attempted to give Orb Gottlieb a depressed fracture to one of his temples, the blow instead landing on the boss's nose. This attempted alfresco surgery at an end, the meteorologist suspended the medico from duties. None of this went on the official log, so we've only hearsay to go on, but it's juicy hearsay, and I recount it here for fear that otherwise the Heard Island winter months won't have much of interest to hold a candle at the candle-lit drama that played out at Macquarie. Fred Jacker liaised between the mutually offended parties, keeping the tea and whiskey coming until Gilchrist and Orb Gottlieb mended their fences at the maudlin drunk phase of, mate, I fucking love you, and I'm not just saying that, you're a top bastard, that's what you are mate, mate. Dovers and Compton got to surveying, and at first pass, determined Heard Island lay 60 nautical miles away from its charted location. Dovers established a survey baseline, and from there, began triangulating the island's topography, making camping forays with Lambeth and Compton. These trips saw the group plagued by sodden clothing and bedding, as the snow and ice underfoot regularly thawed while the island's temperature hovered around 0 degrees Celsius. Tents tore in the gusting winds, and footwear shredded while crossing ferociously jagged former lava flows. Of all the Antarctic camping episodes recounted in this series, the surveying at Heard Island ranked second only to the winter slog by Wilson, Bowers and Cherry Garrard, in terms of immediate physical challenges. Antarctica is colder, and the pack ice offers its own challenges to ships, but the mid-latitudes of the Southern Ocean offer harder trekking and bigger waves, and anyone who sees sub-Antarctic exploration as less worthy of attention because it's not proper Antarctic can shove their assumptions up their poorly corked fundament. As winter dumped more snow on the island, the surveyors switched to making igloos, finding the windproofing far better and the bedding arrangements less sodden, until sudden temperature rises saw the ceilings begin to drip and then fall in on the unhappy occupants. A tent the surveyors sewed to replace those shredded by the local winds 
proved almost too well crafted. When Deb, the canvas became airtight and the close sewn seams and tightly tied doorway didn't vent at all. The oxygen deprived alarm went up when Lambeth tried to light his pipe but couldn't get a match to hold the flame beyond its initial flare. Another near hypoxic death in the south, narrowly averted. Lambeth's geological assessment determined the island volcanic and never possessing any connection to the continental masses lying either side of it in the southern ocean. Remember that this was still in the days before Alfred Wegener's plate tectonics hypothesis gained traction and a number of geologists still sought the non-existent evidence of ancient land bridges. So the huge volcano providing the bulk of the visual diversity along the local horizon didn't constitute conclusive evidence of extensive volcanism on its own to Lambeth's predecessors. I mentioned Wegener in the earliest episodes of this series, and were I more occupied with Arctic exploration, you'd already know he died in 1930 during his fourth expedition to Greenland. He applied Aerosani, or propeller-driven snowmobile technology, to the transport equations he needed to solve in the north, something not attempted in Antarctica for 80 years after Frank Bickerton's unsuccessful attempts to tow sledges with what was left of the Vickers REP monoplane that Mawson took south as part of the Australasian Antarctic expedition. Wegener's Danish-built machines were far superior to Mawson's air tractor, but still weren't much chop in Greenland. Propeller-driven snowmobiles proved their worth as a form of transport, and even as an attack vehicle, during the Second World War, but the circumstances in which they gave their users significant benefits outweighing their many deficits comprise a tightly constrained range of situations, mostly involving large expanses of flat, smooth ice. On the steep gradients and icy sastrugi encountered in Greenland, Wegener's machines weren't up to much and the expedition reverted to dog-hauled operations. Inclement conditions saw Wegener making an emergency dash to relieve a remote field party in company with a team of Greenland Inuit and a German meteorologist, Fritz Lowe. I forgot to mention that Lowe served as meteorologist aboard the Wyatt Earp during the first Anari summer operations. Lowe got his Jewish family out of Germany during the Nazis' rise to power, and after spending some time at the Scott Polar Institute in the UK, he migrated to Australia, finding work as Professor of Meteorology at the University of Melbourne. Philip Law recounted him as one of the sharpest minds of his acquaintance and lamented the shabby treatment he received at the hands of the Royal Australian Navy officers aboard the Wyatt Earp for being elderly, Jewish, German, and for his stumbling gait, which I'll explain in a moment. In Greenland in 1930, most of the Inuk turned back after boosting the companions forward onto the Polar Dome. Conditions grew worse as the final trio neared their goal and Fritz Lowe experienced severe frostbite necessitating the removal of all his toes in a brutal bit of surgery involving a pocket knife and no anaesthetic. The resupply successful, Wegner left Lowe at the remote station to recover in company with the two residents and began sledging back toward the coast with Inuk Rasmus Willemsen, feeding the weakest dogs to the strongest ones from the get-go as they already ran out of dog food on the outward leg of their journey. Wegner and Willemsen died en route, so Wegner never saw his continental drift ideas find vindication and acceptance. 
His ideas gained ground during the Second World War, as bulk sonar and magnetometric measurements of the seafloor began to provide evidence of the subduction, spreading and uplift his hypothesis predicted. Back on Heard Island, John Abbotsmith rationed electricity to nurse the list of diesel generators, much to the ire of all companions. This turned out a prudent move, as the fuel stored in drums corroding after their saltwater immersion regularly fed rust particles into the engine's injectors. Abbotsmith kept busy grinding the injector plungers in a geologist's lathe using toothpaste as a cutting compound, and thus kept the listers going. Compton, Campbell Drury and Macy each scanned the airwaves with their 10 pound, that's currency not weight, though perhaps both, ham radio sets, the first of their kind taken south to my knowledge. Members of previous expeditions did make contact with amateur stations, but did so using the expedition's transmitters. Campbell Drury made the first contact, catching a signal from a station in Western Australia. I should note here that the term ham sounds like it might be an acronym, but it's understood among amateur radio operators as arising from the contempt professional broadcasters felt for the average amateur's Morse key prowess. By the mid-20th century, the amateurs owned the word and its original pejorative intent fell flat. Ham radio became increasingly important to Antarctic isolates in the decades that followed and warranted an episode to themselves, which I'll get to in due course. Thomas Henderson of Graceful Willow Productions made a documentary called 150% The Jules Maybe Story, which maps the importance of ham operators, Jules Maybe in particular, to the US personnel involved in multiple operations deep freeze. While satellite phone connections and internet have increased the options for communicating with the world outside Antarctica, the amateur radio operators continue to provide entertainment and outlet and get a lot of respect from a lot of ice dwellers. Where any fool with a phone can think they're a world-spanning witty raconteur, amateur radio operators understand the electronics and the physics they employ to communicate beyond the curve of the earth and treat the medium and the messages conveyed within it with a little more respect. Campbell Drury struck gold while working to erect part of the rhomboid radio antenna, his pickaxe revealing glistering particles within a rock. Lambeth examined the find under his microscope and nixed the Heard Island Klondike with a dismissive assessment of the metallic traces. Too little to inspire mining interest investment even at home in Australia, let alone to make Campbell Drury his fortune simply by stumbling on chonky nuggets on the beaches. Higher densities of olivine turned up in Lambeth's geological studies. Used in industrial furnace linings and the production of firebricks, the find might have raised some mining investment interest if found anywhere else at the time, with furnaces and firebricks being important factors fueling the mid-20th century everything. Meteorological reports began heading out over the radio in February. Australian farmers finally benefited from the Southern Ocean insights Hubert Wilkins began pressing for decades earlier. The meteorologists filled their pilot balloons and radio sonde balloons with hydrogen, manufactured on site by mixing ferrosilicon, caustic soda and water. These ingredients placed in a steel gas cylinder in pre-measured quantities saw a resulting exothermic reaction quickly produce the required volume of hydrogen without the need to carry the stuff south compressed, 
saving weight and cargo space. The physicists faced challenges in establishing and maintaining their Cosray apparatus. No fine balance came south to aid in measuring the correct quantity of uranium the apparatus needed as a known source of ionising radiation against which the cosmic rays might be compared. Norm Jones' kitchen scales couldn't measure down to the hundredth of a gram necessary. Lambeth suggested they use copper wire as a weight standard. By assuming a 99.98% purity and a density drawn from standard tables, the equivalent volume of copper wire was calculated providing the 0.04 gram standard against which to measure the uranium. The physicists made their own fine balance out of Pyrex glass rod drawn into a fibre over a flame. Using microscope cover slips, they measured out uranium against the copper. Science for the win. The camera used to record the cosmic ray trace broke during the landing and Gelbart and Jacker repaired it using parts taken from the wrecked Walrus aircraft and a broken tin opener, because the alternative was missing a season of data and them sat on their asses with nothing to do through the winter. Joe Gelbart came close to drowning when he slipped on the shoreside rocks and fell in the sea. Weighed down by rifle, fishing gear and the fish that he caught, his waterproofs kept him afloat long enough for a wave to loft him ashore once more. A soggy, cold-soaked, sadder, wiser physicist plodded home, relieved to dodge the fate that befell Charles Scoble at Macquarie, Seymour and on. The South African party established a meteorological station at Marion Island, the 1,400 nautical mile distance, making this party of ten the Heard Island residents nearest neighbours. Radio contact with the South Africans saw a chess match arranged, with one move per night sent over the airwaves. The South African government sent a naval vessel to fetch its Met team ahead of a huge storm headed toward their island in August, so the chess match, gaining the sort of interest normally associated with rugby in the home nations, never played to a conclusion. Strong auroral activity, caused by sunspot activity cycling through at 11 year intervals, caused radio blackouts as the solar winds interfered with the shortwave radio transmissions bouncing off the ionosphere and around the curve of the Earth. Fred Jacker became so interested in the auroral displays he witnessed at Heard Island, he dedicated his extensive future studies to upper atmosphere physics. Now to Macquarie Island. The Macquarie Island residents occupied their wireless hill base that same winter with far more heartache and struggle. Similar weather as experienced at Heard Island made the erection of the four 14-sided American huts and the six less sturdy RAAF units similarly difficult. The Australian huts, built with tropical conditions in mind, featured floor and ceiling level hinged panels to allow a cooling breeze to waft through the structures. These required modification to stem the cooling breezes they facilitated, and the walls required insulation, something already incorporated into the components of the 14-sided American huts. Scientists, come concreters, heated water for each footing batch to give the output some chance of curing before freezing. Though with the outcome largely the same, I would like to speak to a material scientist to better understand why a person might bother. 
With shelter gradually affording small pockets of dryness in the otherwise dampest terrain incorporated under Australia's aegis, Charles Scoble set about getting the place supplied with power. One of the three kilovolt ampere listed diesel gensets cracked its crankshaft after just two days of use. With no spare and no means to repair the cracked unit, the balked generator suddenly constituted a large and unwieldy paperweight. And so began the Macquarie Island Party's continual struggle to keep the lights on. The team's next mechanical problem arose in the form of missing gears in the winch system taken south to aid in constructing and erecting the radio masts. A trawler jack served to piece the mast together, slowly, and the bulldozer worked to draw the various sections vertical, until the D4's engine gave out with cracked bearings. The 30 Borderlester sheep taken south took to their new habitat well, the first lamb coming into the world in late May. But the eight goats, a short hair Sarnan breed, gathered around the hot water heater to keep warm in the horizontal sleep that comprises much of the local climate, burning their hides and not enjoying their newfound freedom one little bit. The party cook, French chef Charlie de Trois, varied the wartime tinned goods menu with a Nari supplied lamb and goat, with Wecker, a flightless rail from New Zealand, and Rabbit, both imported the previous century by sealers as a living protein larder, and with seal meat and penguins, in spite of a Tasmanian government injunction against further harvesting. It's for science, don't you know? The radio operators made contact with Australia and kept up their sked while the meteorologists got their balloon loft, hydrogen generators and Stevenson screens arranged. The party ticked along with equanimity through the early months, each member taking their turn as cooks off cider for a week at a turn, and taking on cooking duties on the weekend ending their time in the kitchen. On the weekend of the 3rd and 4th of June, a blanket of fresh snow coincided with relatively warm temperatures and Alan Mills declared Sunday a holiday. While Mills carried on in the cookhouse, the dozen other men turned to their personal recreational outlets. Engineer Charles Scoble and Cosray physicist Ken Hines headed into the island's hinterland on skis. Outbound, the pair crossed a frozen lake in an upland valley without incident, but on their return leg, the ice surface of the tarn gave way beneath them. Weighed down by layers of formerly warm clothing, newly sodden with chill waters, and encumbered by skiing paraphernalia, the pair struggled to stay at the surface. Ice too slippery to readily grasp and too thin to support their wetted mass gave way enough that Hines made some progress towards shore, using a ski stock he managed to keep hold of to find purchase and leverage. He and Scoble called encouragement to one another as they desperately tried to stay above the surface and make progress towards safety. Scoble fell quiet as Hines neared the shore, but feeling the cold enhanced exhaustion sapping his own will and ability to call out, the physicist figured the engineer simply sought to save his breath for breathing. Once on solid ground, Hines realised only one of Scoble's mittens remained above the surface. Twice he tried to reach it, sliding across the ice surface on his belly, hoping to find his colleague in time to effect a rescue. The ice kept cracking beneath him, and his energy flagged as time wore on, taking hope with it. At the cusp of collapse, 
Hines headed downhill and homeward, staggering into the base long after the three o'clock sunset. Barely coherent through the effects of the cold and the strain of his experience, Hines managed to get the story out sufficient to see a three-member search party heading uphill in the darkness while the doctor applied the hypothermia drill. Falling snow obliterated what landmarks the darkened and snow-covered landscape offered the search party. They failed to find the lake and returned to the huts, exhausted and despondent. Daylight saw the Macquarie party find the lake, but the single mitten remained the only sign of their colleague's presence. Charles Scoble's body remained in the town for almost a month. The eventual successful recovery of their colleague's remains allowed the party the small solace of a proper burial near the lake shore, but the more immediate problem the engineer's death caused them was electrical. Tended by inexpert operators, the two diesel generators ran inefficiently, and no one knew what actions to take as preventative maintenance, let alone how to repair a unit if it broke down. One generator began eating through the oil supply, already desperately short when only two of the allotted 20 oil drums went ashore during the LST unload. In quick succession, the oil-thirsty generator ceased, never to run again, and the remaining unit's electrical output ceased. A last resort petrol-driven 10 kilovolt amp unit should have stood in to keep the bare bones of the radio link with the outside world going. But after lying dormant in the Macquarie Island dankness, the engine refused to start. Prevented from calling on outside expertise by the very nature of the problem they sought to solve, the radio operators set about working out how the machines worked and where those processes came unstuck, eventually getting both the petrol unit started and the diesel unit producing electricity. Macquarie went on a strict electricity rationing scheme. Hurricane lamps and Primus lanterns stood in for lighting any time other than when the radio operators kept their schedule with Australia, or when the meteorologists launched and tracked a radio sound. Even with demand lowered, the diesel unit used up the available oil, its operators shutting it down before it too seized. The petrol unit soldiered on, but its lower output struggled to push radio transmissions out through the rhomboid antenna array with sufficient a nudge to reach Australia. Each time a radio operator tapped a dot or a dash on the Morse key, the engine laboured under the imposed load, giving everyone on base the outgoing news in dots and dashes spelt out in the varying note the engine sang. Alert to the fact that without a diesel, the Macquarie base reverted to 1930s era scientific and political output and heroic age safety margins, Stuart Campbell negotiated an emergency engineer placement flight with the RAAF. An engineer, Frank Keating, existed, and an airframe with the endurance and water landing ability, the consolidated Catalina, also existed. Stuart Campbell flew Catalinas extensively during the war, and knew that while the aircraft could probably land at Buckles Bay on a calm day, he doubted it could take off again in the usual sea state of the place while burdened by half-full fuel tanks. Fortunately, the RAAF happened to recently begin experimenting with jet-assisted takeoff rockets bolted to the side of one of its older, more clapped-out examples of the airframe. A24-104 led a hard wartime life and left a lot to be desired in terms of handling, sluggish and hard to trim, 
and appearance, haggard, but it came equipped with rocket mounts and a rocket-assisted takeoff experienced engineer, Jack Verko. Squadron leader Robin Gray, previously mentioned in this series as piloting the Vought Kingfisher taken south aboard the Wyatt Earp, see episode 130, and Flight Lieutenant A.E. Delahunty visited Point Cook Air Base to gain experience in rocket-assisted Catalina Ops before Campbell and the RAAF brought the man of the moment and the momentous machine together at Cambridge Airport at Hobart on the 22nd of July. The first suitable weather window saw the Catalina depart Cambridge on the 25th of August, Campbell aboard as a passenger, eager to connect with his charges. But the flight turned back due to poor visibility and instrument failures. Unable to make repairs at Cambridge, the Catalina returned to Point Cook to meet a technician and a tranche of spares flown down from Rathmines flying boat base on the 27th. Campbell remained in Melbourne and missed the successful flight, which took to the air on the 4th of August. A non-directional beacon the radio operators rigged on the island, guiding the pilots to the tiny dot in the southern ocean that is Macquarie. The sea state the Catalina crew faced didn't bode well, and squadron leader Gray gave Flight Lieutenant Delahunty, tasked with making the landing, the option of turning for home. Delahunty chose to make the landing. Squadron leader Gray told everyone aboard to adopt crash positions, which sounds dramatic, but as I understand it, was standard procedure for an open water landing in a flying boat of the era. It took four approaches for Delahunty to pick his moment and place the Catalina on the heaving waters in a most professional manner. A shore party launched the dinghy, sputtering through the shore break and navigating the surge out to the Catalina, itself two anchors out and both engines running to hold position. The dinghy's outboard motor gave out, in spite of a rigorous overhaul in anticipation of this critical transit, but the crew quickly swapped it out with a spare, carried for exactly such trying circumstances. This is something we just don't comprehend these days. Anyone who drives a small boat in Antarctic waters today is accustomed to the engine starting first time, every time, and continuing to run effectively day after day, but this is a fairly recent development in outboard motor behaviour. In my lifetime, outboard motor technology came a long way, and it made leaps and bounds between the end of the Second World War and the years before my birth. I've tried to run old Seagull two-stroke engines, and they're the mechanical equivalent of juggling dissimilar objects, even after you're done with the knotted string rigmarole of getting the damn thing started. Short digression about the jaw-dropping reliability of well-maintained modern outboard motors, over. Three times the boat approached the aircraft and three times turned away as the flying boat's hull rose and fell in a manner likely to catch the gunnels and turn the dinghy turtle. Approaching an underway flying boat, all noise and propellers turning just clear of the water, constitutes a challenge on a mill pond, but in Buckles Bay it likely seemed more exciting than anyone cared for. The dinghy came alongside the Port Blister turret the large bug-eyed glazing structure late model Catalinas featured for exactly this personnel transfer sort of business. Engineer Keating and Pilot Gray deplaned and embarked and the dinghy headed shoreward. Wait, why did Pilot Gray leave his airframe, plunging and bucking on Buckles Bay? Philately is the laser-focused answer to that question. 
he got a load of first aid covers franked at the Macquarie Island post office before returning to the Catalina. Catalina anchors are, necessarily, small and lightweight, and these dragged under the task of holding the large and relatively light machine in the offing under the influence of the strengthening westerly wind. Delahunty repeatedly allowed the aircraft to drift to around a mile offshore and taxied back in close using one engine at a time, this last to prevent overheating in the absence of the 110 knots of cooling airstream that constituted the Catalina's takeoff, cruise and landing speed. The three hours Gray spent getting his first tranche of airmail to and from shore cost the Catalina crew a lot of daylight and fuel, but it was strengthening westerly winds that really put a nail in the coffin of the return flight to Hobart. It was New Zealand or bust, but first they had to do the exciting bit. With the engines at full noise, Jack Verco lit the candles and the four Jato bottles gave the Catalina their potent but short-lived kick in the pants. The ride across the water to achieve flying speed couldn't have been fun, but it didn't end in rocket-propelled drowning, so that's all to the good. A24104 set course for Wigram Air Base near Christchurch, arriving with almost dry fuel tanks, because stamps, while Frank Keating got settled among his new companions on the island and got to work on keeping the last diesel generator going. Back on the mainland, Stuart Campbell felt fed up with his lot. In May, he became head of a newly instituted Antarctic section within the Department of External Affairs, the Associated Committee setting him the task of sourcing a suitable ice-strengthened ship for future operations. Drawing a blank on the ship front and disheartened at the prospect of running endless resupply voyages to Heard and Macquarie Islands, he raised the prospect of returning to his role in the Commonwealth Department of Civil Aviation. Philip Law returned to Australia after a visit to Japan to further the cause of cosmic ray science, to find the scientific assistant officer in charge position he already fulfilled in Anari's first year, advertised without anyone telling him his job was up for grabs. Wary of working further with Campbell, but assured the 2IC would slot automatically into the OIC role if, when, Campbell gave it up. Law threw his hat in the ring for the job he already had. Campbell tried to stymie Law at every step, faffing about with selection committees and pushing his own favoured candidate from among his RAAF acquaintances. The Antarctic section called in Sir Douglas Mawson to advise. Mawson's history with Campbell appeared to indicate against the outcome falling Law's way, but Mawson's focus on science as the core reason for an Australian presence in the South gave Law's backers the boost they needed to see the physicist prevail. Campbell returned to aviation administration, later acknowledging his departure as arising because he felt he couldn't work with law due to their personality clashes, but also acknowledging that he underestimated his 2IC and that law's appointment served the NRE for the best in the long run. After getting the protracted runaround, law prepared for his first voyages in overall charge of the NRE with just three weeks in hand. The Labyrinth once more commanded by Lieutenant Commander George Dixon, departed Melbourne on the 21st of January and arrived to swap out the Heard Island contingent after their 13-month residency. The Ducks performed well on the challenging shore of Atlas Cove, 
and Law received much praise for his pragmatic leadership in the circumstances. Trevor Heath, who became Phil Law's 2IC in this precursor of the Australian Antarctic Division, headed up the second voyage to relieve the Macquarie Island team, the Labuan departing Melbourne in late February 1949. The Australian Federal Government paid Charles Scoble's widow and daughters £1,100 on the proviso they not seek further compensation. Flight Lieutenant Malcolm Smith, pilot of the Walrus used in the single survey flight of Heard Island, numbered among the seven personnel of the nine-member crew who died when a Catalina he was flying crashed at Lord Howe Island in September 1948, so Dovers never did get to collect on the £5 bet he and the pilot instituted over the contested height of Big Ben. In local news, I quit the trauma cleaning job. It was better than before, but the old boss set the bar so low it would be hard for anyone not to sidle over it, and better wasn't synonymous with good. Another boss whining that no one wants to work anymore while ignoring the central tenets of the capitalism they claim to worship. I'm no Adam Smith, but I know high demand and low availability equals increased value, but the boss pretended his staff shortage problem lay in societal laziness and refused to apply an economic solution to the problem, leaving myself and Rose as the only staff able to work nights and weekends. When Rose tried to speak to him, he got sexist on her, and she quit. I told him he had two weeks to apologise to Rose, or I'd go too. So now I'm back to casual roles in coastal tourism and commercial diving, which is less lucrative than cleaning up dittos, but far more fun. Take care and appreciate your coffee, and furthermore, I consider that Carthage must be destroyed, and that Hadley Meersham is an abuser who should be avoided. <laughs>